Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm gonna get your ass to Mars. 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 Fun-filled. Yes. Uh, Another fun-filled episode of Conspiranormal. <laughs> Why, yes. <laughs> this is your host, uh, Adam Zane. And your co-host, Luke Reed. Luca Duke. <laughs> and Rob is joining us tonight, too. That's Sick right. Rob. We didn't did switch the names on that one, so... <laughs> <laughs> We could maybe call him like Lens Rob or something like that. You need some, you need some badass nickname, Rob. Yeah, well, it's true. We do. Like, call you know, him the like Vulcan. Pr- producer Rob just doesn't, just just doesn't sound very good. Plus, it'll break the mic. Producer Chris, we we just don't want that to happen too much. Let's call him Rash. Rash. <laughs> sounds like that's like one of those cool. Like, My name is Rash. G- man. Generic like '90s movies, uh, like henchmen titles. Rash. <laughs> 
generic nineties movies henchmen. <laughs> well, like Jewish radicals. Was it? Like Jewish radical. That's my nickname. That's a, that's a good nickname for you, Luke. Uh, well, tonight, guys, we're doing like a special Wednesday night show. Normally, we record on Sunday, but uh, we had a guest that was supposed to come on back in February, and just for some reason, I don't know what happened. Maybe the lines got crossed or something, something like that. But uh, we had uh, the Craig Ciccone, uh second show that we did with him back in February. It was actually, it was supposed to have been a guest named uh, Captain K, who is also, well, his name, his actual name is uh, Randy Kramer, and he claims to have been a Martian, uh, what was it, like a Marine that was stationed on Mars, something you, like that. You didn't yeah. have to call him out like that yeah. by his full name. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, he, he doesn't care. I mean, he's uh, he's revealed his name oh, okay. and everything okay. to, the, to the public now, So, and he told me that he prefers to be called Randy, so... Instead of Captain K, which I was referring to him before. Okay. But, uh, so we were supposed to have him on back then, and uh, tonight we are going to attempt to seek to speak to him. He is at the E-SETI Ranch at the moment. Uh, he was at a, like, a, I guess a conference there for the whole week, and he's still over there. And he said he didn't know whether or not the, uh, whether or not we were going to be able to really get through on Skype. Uh, so we're going to give this, a, we're going to give this a try. So, uh, but anything that's, um, interesting you guys will talk about from like last week or from, uh, I already, get, I already gave the you guys the, the rundown on what's been going on with me. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the well, for the part. listeners, everybody wants to know what's going on with you, Luke. I, I doubt anyone cares. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alright, yeah, so, yeah, like, I went out on the river, on the Stones River, bend, uh, five miles the other day, almost yeah. dehydrated myself, and, uh. Luke almost died, everybody. We almost <laughs> lost Luke. Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I did get a little, a bit delusional. So remember, folks, always bring water with you in your sporting activities. That's right. It's a, it's a great idea to be prepared. That's right. <laughs> it's always, it's always a good idea. Cause I'll... you can't drink the lake water. <laughs> Speaking of being prepared, in case uh, Captain K doesn't show up again, or we have just problems speaking to him, we'll, uh, I've got some things that we can talk about in the show. Okay. So maybe this will just be a guestless show tonight, but we'll see. But um, I'm looking really forward, looking really forward to it. So, without further ado, guys, let's uh, let's take a break here, and we'll try to get into this interview, and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. The fourth annual Paradigm Symposium will again be bridging the gap in Minneapolis, Minnesota, this October 1st through the 4th. The Paradigm Symposiums were founded and exist to present you year after year with the very best thinkers in their fields. From ancient cosmology to ancient aliens, archaeology to esoterics, alternative history to the sciences that illuminate our understanding of who we are and why we're here. Randall Carlson, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Rita Louise, John Ward, Micah Hanks, and Barry Fitzgerald, along with several other phenomenal names in their fields, will be presenting at the Paradigm Symposium 2015, held at the Crown Plaza Hotel, Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Get your tickets now for what will be another amazing, inspiring Paradigm Symposium. For tickets, go to ParadigmSymposium.com or call 651 651- 
4688115. Come to think, leave inspired. We're back on Conspiranormal, guys, and we have on the line. Very excited about this about this person. It's been a long time coming. As I kind of said in the intro, we, we kind of had a our paths kind of get caught up and uh, crossed back in February, but now we got him here. And that's uh, the great Captain K, also known as Randy Kramer, which is his real name, and we'll be referring to him as Randy. And uh, we're going to talk about his experiences being a marine on the planet Mars, among other things as well. So I'm real excited about this, guys. And let's let's Brandy, let's let's bring you on. Uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your background and who you are. And you know, how did you this 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 strange story about being a being a marine on Mars? You know. How did this come about? How did you begin this this whole process of, of uh, well, I guess, you know, you starting with your military career, and then how did you end up in such a strange place? Well, um, to really sort of answer that question, I will, as quickly as I can, give the chronological answer to that. That is So, so uh, bear with me for just a moment. I'll try and zip through this part. In no late 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower essentially, due to what he felt was a, a inconsistent uh, legality issues with the MJ-12 committee and the special study groups and members of the uh, secret space program, to essentially establish through a secret executive order the United States Marine Corps Special Section, which he wanted a military intelligence apparatus and a military tactical response that was directly uh, to deal with exopolitical issues and what we sort of uh, he sort of felt was the uh, uh, legality, morality, questionability of the members of the MJ-12 committee and the special study group. So, uh, because so as we get through the 50s and the 60s and the secret space program evolves, the 1960s was really the heyday for the beginning of genetic engineering and what we in the inside the community call genetically augmented soldier construction or simply creating augments. Uh, and what people in the civilian world and out there call super soldiers. So uh, basically, as the United States Marine Corps Special Section began to study these other programs, they found that they were really uh, wasting a lot of money and damaging the personnel and essentially not really getting, not only getting their best dollar, but essentially harming the soldiers in such a way that uh, it, it made no good moral, ethical, or legal sense to continue to do something that was uh, less than effective and more traumatizing than it was helpful, and um, essentially, with, without you know going into the thick report that they put on the table, there were many many reasons why the other methods that were going were not being used very well. So we sort of make this distinction between what we call an against the grain technique and a with the grain technique, and okay. I, I will quickly explain that. Uh, basically, if you want to point your finger and say, kill that person, kill that person to someone, you're wanting that person to kill on command without a thought or a consideration which goes against the grain of human nature. Right. And going with the grain of human nature is to essentially, instead of telling someone, kill that, kill that person, hey, you've been trained and educated to use the best of your skills, your cunning, and your defensive abilities to protect your people, your community, your planet, etc. So here's a threat or a danger that we understand. Why don't you go deal with it? And that is the with the grain technique. As we go with the grain, we want to protect our communities, our families, our people, our planet. 
And when you have a reasonable ethical consideration for how these people go about their business, we call that a with the grain technique. And I think anyone who's paying attention can understand like the major, major difference between those two styles of doing things. So um, basically under the premise of going with a with the grain technique, uh, in about late 1966, Project Moonshadow was sort of put on the, the board and the beginning laying out of the DNA for the genetic engineering of the soldiers that were going to be in that program were laid out. And then sometime in about late 1968, that genetic program, that, that string of DNA was put together in a lab in a Petri dish. So I am the ultimate laboratory experiment. My, my, my God or my father is a scientist in a lab coat who is toying with a Petri dish. And so when I was born in 1970, I was born into a program, a United States Marine Corps Special Section uh, augmented soldier program called Project Moonshadow. So basically, as funny as this may sound, sort of, sort of, it's absolutely true. I was a Marine since I was a baby. So that is how I got into that program. I was genetically engineered from the ground up under Project Moonshadow in the late 60s. Now, were your parents, were they involved in the program? Uh, were they volunteers to be a part of it? Absolutely not voluntary. They had no notion or an understanding of their involvement in the project whatsoever as far as contributing the basic genetic material that would then be augmented to make me and then be implanted back into my mother's womb so I could be raised in an environment that they felt was conducive to raising a soldier in a with-the-grain uh, system. Okay. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But were they... So they were they were involuntary. I mean, were they were they abducted, or how did that process happen with them? Sure, standard fare, you know, for doing genetic experiments with humans is to essentially uh, use a delta wave emitter, which delta waves are your sleep waves, and if you're in the presence of a delta wave emitter, you will go into sleep unconsciousness and not wake up under any circumstances until the delta okay. wave emitter is turned off. So you know, you turn on a delta wave emitter, makes the entire neighborhood go to sleep. You come in, pick up the person that you want without a struggle or trauma or scaring them. It's not just, you know, to do it sort of subversively. You're also, you don't want to scare or traumatize a subject. So doing it while they're asleep is the best way to do it without terrifying them. So that gives them the opportunity to take genetic samples, take blood samples, run those DNA chains through a computer that they can then pick and decide traits, decide what traits they want to add or change. And then essentially through a sort of form of gene therapy change the DNA chain and then re-implant that back into the mother's womb and then, you know, you're born. So basically creating this uh, lab rat, you know, kind of experiment in a Petri dish and then putting it back in my mom and then nine months later, you know, there I come out. And yeah, it's a little weird to me still sometimes as I think about my life and how that all must have happened. But yeah, that's basically how that happened. Okay, so the people that were doing this, they were members of a shadow government. It was like MJ-12. Uh, the, those, no, those no, guys would have been no, no, no. The directly United States Marine Corps Special Section is not okay. MJ-12. They are a separate military branch, a separate unit which is involved in the covert military space program, but is not the MJ-12 committee. Does not answer to them, but instead has a participatory role in the in the covert space program to discuss policy issues, legal issues, military actions, so forth. So. My people and their people sit around the table together, but they often disagree and don't like one another. So that's kind of our our relationship with them. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. When does the secret space program 
when does that start? What is the, what do you know the beginnings uh, of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. World War Two, middle of World War Two, um, okay. when the Nazis started uh, essentially receiving information from an extraterrestrial species to develop um, advanced propulsion and advanced weaponry and to build their first alien reproduction vehicle called the Habano, which wasn't much more than a flying tank with a you know twenty millimeter air anti aircraft gun underneath it and uh, with big you know. Nazi crosses on the side, but it was made out of pretty heavy, you know, armor plating, metal armor plating, and it wasn't much more than a floating tank that was used for battlefield observation, etc. Uh, the goal was to sort of, you know, get good at that technology, build an air force out of them, and then, you know, win the war. But they really couldn't keep up fast enough with making more of the, these vehicles to do that. So they, were, they had a limited number of them that they were able to use, but never enough to sort of you know, create an air force to engage the allies in, in an all-out war. They just had a few of them, and so after the Habano, their very first, there was the Vril and the Vril One. Uh, the Vril One and the Vril Two, and we have blueprints uh, showing the Vril, the Vril Three, the sort of longer cylindrical uh, vehicle that carried the smaller, you know, Vril Two and Vril One vehicles, which may have been a submarine, may have been like a larger, you know, spacecraft carrier. I'm not really sure. We just have these rough blueprints, but we're not sure if they were actually made of Vril Three or not. So they had the Habano Vril One, Vril Two, and they weren't super advanced, super amazing, but they were certainly a magnetogravitic flying saucer type uh, anti-gravity um, levitating craft. Although they weren't as fast as anything we have now or anything the ETs had, etc. So that's when that started, when they were doing that. And then the instant that they got involved, I would say within a year, like 19, late 1943, the question of whether we picked up a crashed vehicle off the coast of uh, California or whether one was sort of given to us to start reverse engineering so we could kind of try and catch up and compete. So which one of those happens is a little questionable, but definitely by the middle end of the war and immediately after the war in 1946-1947, the United States Covert Military Space Program was um, in the full early stages of being active at that point. So we were definitely okay. building and testing space spacefaring. Now, I know some people are going to say, oh, that's crazy, but I'm telling you, we were developing, uh, testing, and in fact having successful space flights of these early space vehicles, flying saucer-type craft, alien reproduction vehicles, in the late 1940s, a solid 20-some years before we ever had a rocket space program. Okay, so all this after the defeat of the Nazis then came under, like, the aegis of the um, American military? Correct. Okay. That is when Truman established the MJ-12 Committee and the special study groups to deal with the problem. And then uh, Eisenhower, when he came along, was not happy with the way that MJ-12 and the special study groups were dealing with stuff. So he said, uh, I'm going to try and create a counterbalance. And that's why he created the United States Marine Corps Special Center. Okay. So then, so then you're born out of this, uh, this kind of genetic experiment to create like a, pretty much like a super soldier. Um, when were you recruited to go to, to, go to Mars? How were you approached Oh, there was no approach. Uh, there's a training period that starts, you know, when you're about three or four years old. They have to start before the sort of, you know, you hit age five and the sort of neurological development, you know, solidifies. They got to really get you get it early to, to be able to develop all the skills that they want to develop. And so there's a training period. 
that goes until you're 17 years old. And then when I was 17, uh, as sort of standard fare for a training session, uh, two jump room technicians create a jump door, come into my bedroom, you know, pick me up to go for what I was figuring was just another training session. But that was, the, you know, going to, for my deployment. So at that point, we ended up in an underground base in New Mexico, uh, walk down a hallway, get on a TR-3B Black Manta, fly to the moon, and sign some paperwork, get a medical checkup, and then take a, a large, large transport ship that's probably carry somewhere between, you know, four and 5,000 personnel, and then flew, and then jump-gated with that larger transport ship to Mars, uh, about a 15-minute trip, and then arrived there then. So it wasn't really that I got recruited or anybody asked me to. When I finished my training period, United States Marine Corps, as well as these other programs, essentially parcel uh, chunks of soldiers. So I was put into a parcel of 10,000 10, soldiers, so other 9,999 soldiers in that parcel of 10K, to a project called Project Mannequin. Project Mannequin essentially manages the deployment of all the genetically augmented soldiers. So, you know, they just have all these incoming, we need this, we need this, we need people deployed here, and then they basically go through the stacks of all the incoming soldiers to deploy and then decide where they're going. So in whatever decision process that was, uh, you know, my file got stuck in a, a stack that was going to Mars. So yay team, I went to Mars. <laughs> What's a jump gate? Well, are we talking about like a portal here, some kind of... So it's a wormhole generator. Some people refer to it as teleportation technology, and, and that's not inaccurate because... You know, it's often referred to internally as teleportation technology, but it really is. But it's not Star Trek transporter technology at all. It's essentially creating a wormhole that when you jump into that wormhole, it jumps you to another location within a few seconds, a few minutes, instead of, you know, maybe light years or farther or hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of miles or whichever. Gotcha. Okay. So that's that's a, that's another just like transportation system to go to maybe the moon or to Mars or... Yeah, absolutely. If you know of the uh, testimony of Andy Basaggio, he yeah, was familiar involved with in the jump room mm -hmm. program when he was. Yeah, Andy's a good friend of mine, and, and he was involved in the jump room program when he was a kid. And it's considered, you know, really some of the highest classification of technology. So, um, not everybody was aware of the jump room technology until it came along. We personally weren't using the jump gate technology on Mars until I'd been there for a few years. So, you know, we, we weren't using it until, you know, probably the early 1990s, but it's been around since the 1960s. So it's kind of the, you don't just get to use that technology just because it's available. It's really been mostly kept aside for the most highly level classified personnel in military missions. Okay. Do you want to ask this, uh, this all makes an awesome movie. I mean, it's just like playing out in my head right now. And it's just, right, right, it's right. like, wow. <laughs> That's a killer movie. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've had a couple of people who've offered to buy my, my rights, my life, and, and make it into a movie. But, you know, until somebody comes along with what I consider to be a legitimate offer to not just turn it into a, a, a grade B, you know, sci-fi channel special, then right, uh, right, maybe right. I'd consider it. But, until, but, but you like know, really this bad is how I feel CGI. about it. You know? Straight to Netflix only. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. I mean, this is how I feel about it. Like, I'm not trying to make money off of this at all. So I have no interest in, you know, making a few dollars off of selling my rights to my life story. I would rather it be told correctly. And so there's no way I'm handing over my life story to be turned into a piece of crap 
you know, movie or TV series or a video that I would that I would never watch. And if I did watch it, I would go, oh, my God, I can't believe they did this to my story. I would, I would just never do that. So, And I'll be honest, my Brigadier General told me very clearly, he was like, look, don't you even accept, don't you even accept a, a C or D list offer you wait till you get an a-list offer and then you know be a hardcore negotiator that it's got to be right so yeah, yeah I, and that's because along. we believe in the content of the story yeah we believe in the content of the story and the message of the story way more than you know the sensational ideas of the story so it's important that we get it right we tell it right and people understand what the real purpose of having this conversation is and not just to go ooh mars high tech you know special effects woo it's like really this is about legality this is about morals, ethics, uh, criminality, rogue programs, uh, constitutional violations, um, you know, subverted democracy, and a lot of other very, very serious issues that don't just fall under the area of criminality, but when you directly look at how they violate Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3 of the Constitution, have to be defined as what they are, which is sedition and treason. And I think anyone who really understands what those two words mean knows that that's very serious. And we don't want to just have a conversation about cool special effects and technology and sensationalized violence when this is a very, very serious concept and understanding to talk about, you know, seditious and treasonous legality. I wanted to ask you, I was kind of ties into that. On your website, you were talking about how maybe it was your uh, brigadier general or whoever, but they told you that it was time to kind of come out and ease the public into all this. And that's why you're out there right. sort of giving your story and... Yeah, and and to second that too, it's like this. Correct. This seems to be one of those, uh, one of those stories that just like would be really good. no, no one would would know about this. Like we we don't believe that there's any like bases on Mars or anything. Like we just send like the rovers over there and that's it. And it's like so the public doesn't know about some of this stuff. So and it would seem like this would be something that would be the utmost secret. So how did they allow you to to reveal this? Well, that once again comes right down to the issues of legality. So the United States Marine Corps Special Section Special Code of Conduct, which essentially is the code of law signed into law by secret signed by into law by secret executive order by President Eisenhower. So as a commissioned officer under that code, I am not just obligated, I am morally, legally uh, obligated to act in my duty and conscience to obey and enforce the United States Marine Corps Special Section Special Code. So the guidelines within that code essentially establish circumstances and conditions where if things become legally compromised, and I mean that, I mean constitutionally legally compromised in a way where, again, we're not... These people are not respecting Article 1, they're not respecting Article 2, and they're not respecting Article 3. So um, that enables me and possibly other officers, based on what's in the USMC SS Special Code, that it the imperative to take action to restore legislative, executive, and constitutional authority over rogue programs uh, circumvents and supersedes any... Secrecy, agreement, secrecy agreements or non-disclosure statements. So essentially, it allows me a perfectly legal loophole that is older than my non-disclosure statement, and therefore it has a greater legal power to act in my to require to act in my moral conscience legally, ethically to take action. So 
Uh, it's not, you know, basically it just gives me this complete legal path that Eisenhower's men put in there to ignore my non-disclosure statements and instead speak publicly because the national security uh, need and threat is far greater and far more important than the non-disclosure statement. So it's part of like a checks and balances system. Or... That's the goal. That was the goal. That was what Eisenhower wanted was that checks and balance system, and that's why the code is written that way. And so fingers crossed, you know, that this is going to balance things out a bit and it's going to work. And that you don't just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that, and I'll tell you that why in a minute. Uh, but I will say this, that that's also the reason why there's one of me talking about this, one officer from the United States Marine Corps Special Section, because one guy gets killed, that's better than ten guys getting killed. So I am also out here as, you know, eh, if anything happens, it's just one guy. But to be honest, um, you know, my Brigadier General has made it very clear that I'm just not out here on my own, that I am very well protected both legally, by treaties, by the protection of this code and our organization, uh, as well as what I found out this week now is that I have... Um, they have assigned a small crew and a ship on a TR-3B that's pretty much designated to follow me around about 1,000 feet over my head 24-7, 365 from now on. So I'm kind of not worried. I feel pretty safe. Not to mention, you know, the augmented soldier thing. I would really, I, and I mean this, and I want to say this to any of these uh, NSA and ASA uh, douchebags who keep sending me threats. Skin your smoke wagon, buddy. Get over here and try and kick my butt. I can't wait to have one of you mothers show up to my door so I can show you just what genetically augmented super soldier means. So bring it. Yeah, I don't think they're going to want to mess with that. <laughs> so Hey, um, I can't wait for him to. I want him to badly. So come on, bring it. Skin your smoke wagon, boy. <laughs> I, I had to step out for a moment, uh, and I, I may have missed uh, the mission objective. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry if you already talked about it, but uh, could, could you go over that quickly with me? Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Say again. As far as what mission are you referring to again? Say again. Uh, well, well, the, the, the Mars. I'm the, not sure what. The the actual mission objective on Mars. I, I didn't I didn't catch that part. Oh, we never got to that yet. The mission objective yeah, on Mars okay. was uh, oh, okay. military. Yeah, yeah. But it, okay. it was it was it was military defense and territorial defense. So we had a base. We have stations. The goal is to defend the stations in those territories, patrol the, the outlying territories, and protect the uh, colonies, that, that those, peer, those areas, and engage with any hostile, aggressive forces with, you know, whatever military might we have at our disposal. That's the basic mission. Okay. Uh, so so what, what kind of um, traits did you get from the augmentation? Um, that's a good question. I would basically just have to say enhanced traits, you know, so I'm supposed to be stronger, faster, smarter, a bunch of other things, more psionic. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I, I don't like to think of myself as a better person than anybody because I think that's a qualitative quality that has nothing to do with whether you're stronger, faster, smarter. But I have right. traits that certainly give me an advantage and an edge under combat and military tactical circumstances, and that's basically what they want is, is that edge so whatever genetic uh, abilities they can enhance and make better will give you that edge. So that's the goal. Just give us as much of an edge genetically as possible. Plus, uh, as you as you mentioned before, there's not as much like the, you, the hesitation of 
if someone tells you to go and kill, right, you uh, might be more less hesitant to, to to carry out that order. So is that what's the genetic? Um, again, I, sorry, go ahead. Uh, again, I'm sorry. Let me understand that real quick. Again, it depends on the type of program that you're under. If you, you certainly, as a soldier, they want you to follow orders, but there's just a slight difference between following a lawful order and an unlawful order, and you essentially have to crush the personality, the mind of a soldier that you want to obey unlawful orders. But if you train a soldier to be have a conscience, then you know giving it a lawful order to kill or do something is just like giving a soldier any other order that he's going to know is, hey, I'm, I'm allowed and this is a legal thing for me to do. This is my job. Why wouldn't I do it? Versus, uh, wow, I'm not sure if I can question whether I should be doing that and the legality of it, whether that's a war crime. So it really depends on the program that you're in, on whether you know, how they make you to do that. But essentially for us, the way we were designed, uh, just any lawful order to protect, you know, your people, your unit, your division, your planet, your people, whatever you're protecting in a lawful legal sense that doesn't qualify, that doesn't break, violate war crimes or create war crimes, then you're going to not have any problem doing. And But someone who's programmed to just, you know, kill, kill on, on command, well, you might be able to just create all kinds of war crime situations and they won't question it. But... Again, that right. type of soldier has a very, very short lifespan because of what you have to do to its mind and body to get it to comply that way. Uh, I, I want to ask about what's on Mars. Um, it, first of all, how long were you actually there? How long were you stationed? Um, yeah, 17 years, 3 months, 14 days, 22 hours. But who's counting? Wow. Got it down pretty much to the to the hour. That's pretty impressive. Uh, and also these colonies. I, I personally, that, I personally meditated on that question a bunch of times to where I, I have been able to get that down to about the hour. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And, and, and these these colonies that are on Mars are these military colonies? Are these civilian col- colonies? What what are the colonies that were that that were that we're talking about here? What's their their purpose? Uh, the, Sure. The colonies are essentially run by the MCC, which is the Mars Colony Corporation, which is under the umbrella of a larger corporate group called the ICC, the International Corporate Conglomerate. So it's essentially a bunch of businessmen and corporations who have tried to create this breakaway civilization and this breakaway economy to create labor, mining, industry, uh, a whole other economy where they steal, you know, some kind of like 9 to $15 trillion out of our Earth economy every year, funnel that into a covert economy, and then generate also with that industry and that labor on Mars a whole nother economy that we never see a dime of. So the breakaway civilization's purpose is to suck the life out of us, make as much money as possible so they don't need it anymore, need us anymore, and then kill every last one of us on planet Earth and start over. They're kind of they're kind of dicks. There you go, you know? Luke. So that's their plan. Those are your kind of people. Finally, finally lighter traffic. Let me ask about you. You, you mentioned the fifteen trillion dollars. You threw that figure out there, and this you, you hear it, about it's an estimated the, figure of about nine uh, to fifteen trillion. That's an estimate that we figure based on a number of numbers. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You hear about this. $3 trillion that was missing from the Pentagon the day before 9-11. And apparently Don Rumsfeld right. got up there and said that uh, 
to Congress and said that three trillion dollars, trillion with a T, was missing from the military defense right. budget. And that's unreal. Right. It, it, do you think that that's where some of this money that that's where that's going to is this breakaway civilization? Oh, guarantee. And so basically, not only did Donald Rumsfeld say that you know we lost that money, there's since been uh, reports from the General Accounting Office showing that we're actually missing about three trillion a year from the general budget. That's the general budget, not black budget, not any other covert, you know, drug dealing, arms dealing sort of programs that funnel that money too, but just, just out being stolen out of the general United States national budget, three trillion a year. Interesting. So you start to add up all these other trillions and it starts to look like about nine to 15 or more that, you know, they're stealing out of the global economy and take away and not giving it back to us. Okay. And that's going into pretty much going in, into those coffers. So, some of your duties oh, yeah. there. They're, 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 how many sorry, colonies their goal are there? Is basically, end uh, democracy and create feudalism again by by creating that level of, of economic disparity. They they would love to have feudalism yep. again. So that's their goal. Oh. Yeah, Luke's got a question about the, the about the Andrew Basiago, and we kind of would love to get him on to talk about it. But uh, the, the he claims that Obama was there with him. Uh, is there a recruit? Like Basiago says that there he was recruited. Uh, you know, he wasn't in the military, but he was recruited to go there. I believe through like his school, and uh, apparently that Obama was recruited to go there as well. Is that is that kind of recruitment going on, and are they just pulling from kind of like a upper crust or like a blue blood kind of network of elites? Um, I, I, I don't think that's exactly how that worked. And my understanding is that um, Andy's dad, and, and you know, he certainly knows the story because he tells it better than I do. And uh, if I'm recalling the way he's explained it before correctly, so if anyone, you know, I get this wrong, I'm just going to apologize for not having his story perfectly memorized. But my understanding is his father was an intelligence officer, and uh, he was really good friends. His father, One of his father's best friends was another intelligence officer or Air Force NASA guy or something, and essentially, uh, you know, his son and this other friend, uh, friend of his dad's son, that were the two of them were good childhood friends, were taken into the program because their fathers were very, very closely related to with these intelligence programs. And the goal to the reason they needed to use these kids about age nine was because the whole point of developing this technology, or the main purpose of what they wanted this technology for when it was being developed, was to allow the president of the United States and the president's family, which you know, includes some children, to be able to uh, say, oh, oh, we're going over to England for a meeting, and you, they, they apparently aboard Air Force One and have a flight, but really they get in the jump room in the basement and zip over there, so there's no jet lag, and they kind of start the conference right away, and then it just appears as if they're taking an airplane flight, but they're not actually taking an airplane flight, and they would need to be able to have the kids be able to go through the jump rooms to the point of testing it on these sort of nine, ten-year-olds was to make sure that the technology would be safe for uh, the president's children. And I can say that, um, you know, I I find Andy to be an incredibly intelligent, sober individual who, as an attorney, uh, who has never had a day of mental illness in his life, who is 
a pillar of this community who has uh, good standing as a lawyer in the Bar Association of the State of Washington. Uh, he is a very sane, very sober person. And if he says that Barry Obama was in the, the jump room class with him, then I, I believe him. Okay. Yeah, it was a very interesting claim that he made. I believe, I believe that his report is accurate. It is. Okay. It, I have to admit, it's very interesting to me. The first time I... I heard it, I was like, well, that's pretty weird. But after talking to Andy enough, I can only say that he is, he is an incredibly sane, sober, stable, honest person who I simply cannot ever believe would tell a lie like that. He, seems, he has way too much integrity, uh, way too much honesty, and, and just is not a liar. And so I realize people think that that's you know, a little outlandish to make that claim, but uh, Andy is a sane, sober person, a pillar of his community. Uh, as a good-standing attorney with the State Bar Association, which I want to point out, the legal liability of being a lawyer and telling any lie, committing any fraud. So if he was lying about this story, the story, the State Bar Association would simply have him disbarred for committing that kind of fraud. And he has never been approached by the State Bar you know, for fraud, and he is in good standing, like I said, a sober pillar of this community who just simply would not lie. So he's, he's really like... Uh, an amazing Boy Scout in that way, and and I just if, if he says that's how he recalls it and that's what happened, I have no reason to believe that he is doing anything other than telling the absolute truth. So me okay. not having been there, I can't I can't confirm that, but you know I know Andy again to be same sober person of good standing and honesty, and if he says that's what happened, then that's what happened as far as I'm concerned. His words you... his words good enough for me. Did you ever encounter anyone that uh, the famous that we would know from the news or from uh, from culture that uh, or from the from politics that was there uh, uh, on those colonies? Uh, no, because I didn't really see anybody at the colonies. I was never at the colonies. I spent my entire existence, other than the, you know the three minutes that I arrived at Harry's Primus. The, capital of the colonies and the headquarters of the MCC. Uh, I spent my entire career on Mars at Forward Station Zebra, and that's the only place I knew for that entire period that I was there. Uh, now, okay. when I finished my 20-year tour, after my tour on Mars, at 17-plus years, uh, I was very, very, very blessed to be given a promotion, go to officer candidate school, go to flight school, become a pilot so I could fly these amazing uh, advanced fighter craft as a part of an air wing on the EDF SS Nautilus, which stands for the Earth Defense Force Starship Nautilus, and finished out my 20 year career doing that. And then when that was over, uh, because at that point I was an officer, you know, woohoo, uh, we got to go back and have a sort of farewell dinner, you know, on the moon, a sort of banquet presentation where I got to wear our fancy uniforms with all, all our fancy medals and sit in a very large conference room and have a couple of special speakers, you know, say, thank you very much, you're the best of the best, blah, 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 pat you on the back, you know, good job, welcome back, et cetera, et cetera. And while that event was, uh, is kind of fuzzy in some parts, because, you know, I was sitting at a table with some other uh, junior officers, and I was only a captain, so, you know, wasn't up with the, the majors and the colonels. Uh, we were back with some other lieutenants and captains at a sort of a back table, and, uh, we, we had alcohol to drink, and we hadn't drank an alcohol for 20 years, so we were a little buzzed. Uh, but what I do remember is Donald Rumsfeld, you know, giving a speech and saying some oh, really? stupid crap that I didn't really care to, because I think he's an idiot. 
but yeah, he was actually there, gave a speech, and, you know, good job, well done, this is all for blah, 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 blah other stupid stuff that he says, because he's an idiot. And now, was, was he that. Secretary so, of Defense no at the time? Was he Secretary of Defense at the um, time? Now, this would have been in 2007, which I think okay, might so have been would have right been after, after he... Yeah. yeah, I think that was right after he left the post. He was like, I'm out, I'm off. But that doesn't mean he was out of the, you know, the loop. That meant he right, had other stuff right. to do. Uh, but all I, you know, all I can say, I don't know what his job was at that point. I don't know what his assignment was at that point. All I know is that he was up there giving a speech like the arrogant douche that he is. <laughs> So, so uh, some of your friends. I'm sorry. Am I wrong? Is he not an arrogant douche? Oh, I, 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 to- I totally agree with you. <laughs> I, I'm not- <laughs> there's any one person that I think is like, uh, well, him and Cheney would be the people that, if there was a conspiracy to whatever the the form took for 9/11, then he would be one of the people that I would look at. So, I agree with you. Huge, yeah, huge I, I, I said this before. I said this before. I don't know a ton about these people. I don't know a ton about who these people are and who's really in charge, in charge of these programs. But there is no question in my mind that somewhere at the heart of this illegal, amoral, unethical, unconstitutional violation of intergalactic national treaty activity is Mr. Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Uh, no question in my mind. Emphasis no question whatsoever in my mind. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Did I say Dick Cheney with emphasis? Uh, so basically, if, if anybody needs to get arrested and brought up on criminal charges for this, it's those two. <laughs> well, let me ask you. I want to. This is the. This is the really good stuff here. You were defending the colonies, and you were defending them from. Alien species. Correct. What were some of the species that you guys encountered there? You know, uh, where were they coming from? Uh, why were they attacking? What, what like? was the yeah? What do they look like? What was the relationship between uh, them and the and the colonies? Um. To, okay, so I'll try and give the most basic answer to that question. Is because it, it felt a little complicated, but. Um, Essentially, it was us, a indigenous reptile species, an indigenous insectoid or mantid species. And By indigenous, about, it's just say, a bonus, right? Yeah. Okay. In, in, yeah, exactly. That, that's why okay. I call them, in, you know, say that they're the indigenous species. Because we also about, uh, I want to say somewhere in the middle of the fourth, almost of the fifth year that I was there, the draconians, the alpha draconians got involved and started to show up and and tried to invade Mars, but you know their, their problem was is they didn't have one force to deal with. They had the insects, the reptiles, us, these other species that were also on Mars that were not really you know going to let us let the draconians militarily run over us all. Uh, so it, you know there was, but but we were up in this northern polar region, and and there are some other a couple other species like the Homo sapiens marcus. More Marcus Marcus that you know Andy calls them, which is this uh, a more humanoid-looking indigenous species of Mars, as well as this very non-human, but you know, two arms, two legs, big head, pointy ear kind of uh, species, the Homo Marcus Marcus. So, but we never experienced them. They sort of more down south, sort of the equatorial region. Up north, it was just us, the insects, the reptiles, and then when the Thronians showed up, it was a four-way fight, and it got interesting at that point. Oh, I'm oh, sure it did. I, I, 
Yeah, no problem. Okay, I, I, I a couple of gentlemen who are leaving the ranch here, and I had to give them a good bite. Okay, no problem. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, were there some there's some others? Uh, like, how many species total? Uh, like a kind of like a rough estimate that that you encountered there. And what was the most, like, maybe the most violent species, and what would have been the most, like, peaceful one? Uh, the draconians, definitely, of the species that we encountered, are the most violent, the most aggressive. And the mantids or insects really would be the most peaceful uh, because of their high consciousness and high mentality. But, again, you know, they were seriously defensive, aggressive, you know, when we, you know, hit their territory and so forth, uh, but they they defended with a fierce, fierce, fierce response, but they were also not uh, emotionally attached to their aggression. So they weren't angry. They didn't hate us. They weren't, ah, screw you. We're going to kill you. They were just like, oh, you're in our territory. Like essentially an ant mound. You get too close to an ant mound, they're like, oh, you're in our territory. You know, get out of here. They're crawling and bite you. Yeah. So basically, if, if, when we were violating their territory or got too close, then that was going to be a fight. But uh, they're pretty non. They're, I mean, they have the ability to be very aggressive, but they're very, fairly, I would say, non-violent, if that makes any sense. That doesn't mean that fighting them was any kind of a walk in the park, because their main skill is organic genetic engineering. And let me put it to you this way. If you are an insect species and your master skill is genetic engineering, why in the world would you want to send your conscious, sentient members of your society to go fight to their death when you can genetically engineer and hatch in a very short period of time uh, a, a swarm of beetles about the size of a small dog with pinchers, you know, eight inches long, venom stingers, and essentially swarm your opponents with a genetically engineered bug swarm. Yeah, I mean, that makes much more sense. So that's essentially when we would get too close, uh, they would send these massive swarms of insects at us and, and it was really uh, kind of awful and chaotic. And to this day, you know, I hate buggies, man. I hate buggies. And I. Well, I guess and, if you've had a you beetle know, the size of a dog some... come at you, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. You need to understand. It was not a beetle the size of a dog. <laughs> it was hundreds of thousands or millions of beetles the size of a dog swarming around you in an absolute nightmare that blacked out the sky. That, that was more like that. Yeah, that just gave me chills. <laughs> how, how did you get through something like that? I mean, like... Sometimes like, I didn't. You... Jeez. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I get killed and then have to get brought, basically brought back to life when they rebuild you. So we, we really had sort of, uh, oh, you're kind of dead. You're pretty darn dead. You're really dead. And then you're absolutely dead. There's really kind of these stages of just how dead you can be. Because they have the ability to sort of bring you back once they repair your body, as long as there's some electrical activity in the brain and your silver cord that connects to your soul doesn't actually get cut and released. Once that happens, if the silver cord lets go of your body, uh, you are then classified. Now, officially, you're still not classified as dead, which I think is sort of an ironic Orwellian thing. You're classified as unretrievable. Okay. So that's a nice way of saying that you're absolutely fully dead at that point as you're unretrievable. So, so on top of everything else, we have the ability to regenerate too. Uh, this is just a lot. <laughs> why, why, like, why don't they bring that here and regenerate 
people here and and, and you know if they can cure bring someone that was just sworn by dog-sized beetles back from the dead then they can surely bring somebody back from the dead that's from the died of cancer why why don't we have this technology same answer that I gave before. The purpose of these individuals who are controlling this technology is to steal as much money, as much resources as possible from planet Earth, create a breakaway civilization, and when they no longer need people on Earth, kill every last one of us. They hate us. We are expendable to them. As far as they are concerned, we are breathing their air, stepping on their land, using their resources, and they think they have every right to kill every last one of us so that they can have it all. Because they're dicks. That's just kind of the way it is. Gotcha. Well, so, a bunch of Dick Cheney's. I'm also sure uh, sure some of the elites do exactly. have access to this. So I was going to ask earlier. Correct. I think you might have just, just answered but, my but question. They don't necessarily have the ability just to bring that technology to the people just because they have some access to it. There are some compartmentalization issues that just because you have access to that technology doesn't mean you can just bring it to the people. But I will say this, this question. Uh, since I sort of started doing interviews like a year ago, some things have seriously changed in this scenario, including the, uh, the fleet, the Solar Warden Radiant Guardian fleet, choosing to no longer remain neutral in this conflict. Their neutrality was essentially based on, hey, hey we're just here to defend the solar system, keep people out, politics, you know, Earth, Mars, you guys got to sort that out. But basically, these situations become so bad, even in their eyes, that they have decided to no longer remain neutral. So... They have been dealing with these ET species who want to enforce the treaties that we've already signed, enforce the legal obligations that we've already agreed to, and start inspections and investigations on Mars and the colonies and the labor conditions to basically try and get everyone into compliance. Uh, and if they don't want to get into compliance, then you know there could be some uh, heavy, you know, force-related, military-related issues. And the space fleet uh, is nobody to mess with. It. And essentially, their goal now is to. Uh, investigate and inspect the sort of Mars cabal illegal uh, treasonous seditious groups and bring some of that technology to planet Earth and change what this whole goal and agenda has been. So when I say, you know, the breakaway civilization, you know, is trying to get rid of us, that's not the fleet. The fleet is a completely different entity than the breakaway civilization. It's, it's sort of part of the space, you know, it is the space program, but they ha haven't been really in favor of this breakaway civilization idea. They really were part of the, yeah, aren't we supposed to, aren't we going to tell the people on Earth at some point? And not knowing that politically and socially, as far as these other individuals concerned, that was not the goal. So now that the fleet is, you know, it's obvious to them what their goals are and that they violate their own codes and ethics and essentially threaten uh, the safety and sovereignty of the fleet, to be honest, the fleet essentially can no longer remain neutral and considers it a a global solar system security issue to get involved. So the first thing that I can say that they did that was very, very public that they got involved with, you may recall there was a comet that was uh, going in front of Mars and coming around to Mars, and when it got sort of the corner of Mars, there was this large explosion in space. And many people thought, oh, that was an explosion on Mars, and no, no, not at all. Uh, it was an explosion in space. It was a massive explosion. And at first, because we had no data that there had been any, any loss of life or even a loss of a material or a ship, that it was not an attack, no one got blown up, that it seemed to be uh, a deliberate setting off of a very, very large explosive weapon simply to say, hey, we're here, to get everybody's attention at a time and a place 
when they exactly knew when and where we'd be looking right there. That was our theory in the very first sort of days and weeks of this, but I can say now that we've done our full investigation on this and can confirm that that explosion was in fact a purposeful, deliberate explosion set off by the fleet to say, hey, we're here uh, and, you know, get attention. So that was, that was a, a very visible step to everyone. And, and since then, they have said and done some other things behind closed doors, uh, began and, and, and started to enforce these inspections um, and investigations into criminality, slave labor, environmental pollution, and so forth. And so the, the fleet, I have to say, is, a, is really stepped up as a bunch of honorable officers and are trying to do their duty to protect uh, democracy, the republic, sovereignty of planet Earth, and keep everybody from being killed. Right. So... Uh, <clears throat> I think you sort of might, might have answered my question earlier there, but I just want to um, kind of reiterate it. I was going to ask why, if it's, it's if it's mainly the U.S. that's involved in these missions and that has their hands on this technology, why they're not using it in, with our military here on Earth. But if they have bigger, broader goals and they're not concerned about Earth, I guess that kind of takes care of that. But I guess my new question is, is it just the U.S. or is this more of like a... Um, a global elitist type of an organization that's trying to break away and exterminate the rest of us. Yeah. But well, that, that again becomes sort of a two-sided effort. So in the sense that you have a significant portion of any of the other global space programs, which basically, okay, yeah, the U S was sort of starting first, but it was also a cooperative program with the Russians. So, you know, we weren't just developing this technology ourselves in the 40s. We were immediately involved in engaging with the Russian scientists, Russian engineers, Russian military intelligence apparatus to develop that space program. And then as the more technologically advanced countries uh, began to acquire this technology through spying and some sharing, but mostly through spying and getting the information, by the 60s, uh, you know, all of what we would sort of think of as the major G7, G8 countries had covert military space programs. So the goal at that point was to get a certain amount of people to participate and join the larger global EDF organization that's all made up from these officers and soldier personnel from these um, other secret space programs. So the U.S. has led the way, has the largest program, spends the most money, but there are uh, at least you know seven or eight uh, or more other countries who do participate, including Japan. Japan is not thought of often as having a space program, but they have had a covert military space program since the 70s, and they've been involved uh, as well. And I want to say this about the Japanese. I have to say, when they come up, I want to say this. Uh, They keep their experimentations in robot technology very secret until it's time to release. Uh, And they've been coming out with more and more advanced and amazing robot technology. I want to make this very clear. Anyone who has studied or understands the Japanese people, who has watched an anime or read a manga comic book, knows one thing. The Japanese people, the Japanese military, want giant fighting military robots. They will have them, and when they do, the whole world will know, because they will be very, very excited to roll out their giant fighting robots. So we have that to look forward to. We will have giant fighting Japanese robots. Oh, yeah. Mech warriors. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> because, they want, because, right, right. No, no, bigger. I'm talking like the 60, 70, 80 foot, you know, giant fighting Godzilla sized robots. They want that 
more than anything. And so all of their development into this robotic technology is not to make small robots, it's to develop that technology, perfect it, so they can build giant, you know, industrial fighting robots that are, you know, 80, 90, 100 feet tall or more or whatever. Just giant like fighting robots. Pacific, In case yeah. we get... Exactly. And, and, you know, basically, and I'll tell you why, because we do know that the scale of some of these extraterrestrials out there is huge. So it's not inconceivable that giant space monsters could actually be deployed or that we could have that as an issue. And they really feel like, hey, we need a giant robot. So that's what they're doing. They are developing and building all this robot technology so that when they got it down, they will develop and then release uh, this, ma- this massive robot technology. Because believe me, they're very, very proud of their robots. And when they have it, they will want the world to know. And we will know because they will have giant robots. I can definitely see a strategic war advantage there for the Japanese. Uh, well, I, well, I love to... Yeah, just because got kicked at the end of the World War II and kind of said, oh, yeah, no problem, doesn't mean that they don't have designs or ambitions to once again be a global military player. They would very much like to, to stand tall as a global military player again, and they certainly feel that, that that would give them that status again as you know a global military player that has to be respected uh, as an equal, because they, they certainly feel a little, uh, you know, trodden down from having tried to, you know, take over the world or half of it, you know, because the emperor has, was a little uh, maybe or maniacal, and they, yeah. they really want to get back up and feel they're equals uh, militarily with the rest of the world because they, they know that they have some of the most advanced electronics industry and science of anybody, and they, they you know, why not have giant robots? So they really want to have that robot. <laughs> Let's, uh, uh, did you want to ask something, Luke, real quick? Yeah, just, just real fast. Uh, I, I love to nerd out on the mechanics of ships and everything like that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, like, coming in on the mana and coming through the jump uh, holes and everything. Man, that's awesome to me. And, and uh, I was just wondering, did you guys have any kind of special weaponry on the planet that would be different from our planet? Or did you guys have, like, the standard, you know, M16s or M30s or whatever you guys were carrying, AR-15s? Oh, hell no. No, we had stuff that was so much cooler than that. We had uh, uh, essentially Gauss rifles, magnetically propelled rail guns. So uh, basically a rifle that, you know, um, essentially, uh, and again, because it's not using a chemically pro- uh, projected cartridge, you don't really have right? a long bullet. Yeah, you don't really have these long cartridges. You essentially have this, uh, your magazine is like a, a big box of ball bearings, you know, almost like a paintball gun, you just kind of drops the balls, you know, but it comes underneath and it basically feeds these like, giant ball bearings into the, the rail gun and fires them off magnetically at this amazing high speed with no kick, <clears throat> no heat and no kick because there's no chemical explosion, so they're incredibly accurate, incredibly steady fire incredibly long distances. They are really an amazing, amazing weapon. I miss my Betty Lou, let me tell you. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it sucks you had to turn it in. <laughs> I, want, I want to ask uh, Randy oh, about... I, 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 as this may sound to some people, you know, y'all named your guns, and mine was Betty Lou, and I can just remember stroking her side and going, you know, come on, baby, daddy needs a headshot. So, you know, you, just, you develop a relationship Weapon and, and I miss my Betty Lou. What can I say? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. I, I want to ask about the role that time travel plays. Um, is, is, is does does time travel 
come into come into this anywhere um yeah like you had mentioned that you spent 17 years and then you spent another 20 years uh but i've heard other interviews with you where you've talked about possibly going back right i I, the full tour was a 20-year tour so it was basically 17 and then another you know then another three uh pilot yeah so i finished out a 20-year tour but basically the way this works is on November the 18th, uh, or in the morning of November the 18th, 1987, uh, I was taken, you know, when I left, and essentially brought back to the moon at the end of my 20-year tour, and what they call age-reversing, air quotes, but really is them hatching out a younger clone body that's the same age as when they took you, extracting your soul, putting it in that, and then returning you 15 minutes after you left. If that makes okay. sense. So we call that a quantum annihilation. So so basically at 17 years old, I'm taken away for 20 years, come back, put into a 17-year-old clone body again with my actual soul. I'm not like a a, a soulless clone. Uh, Put my actual soul into simply a copy body. Uh, And so with 17 again, sort of for the second time, except... I'm not really 17 because my chronological age has just had the addition of over 20 years, which we call a quantum dilation. So I'm quite a bit older than my birth date or my physical body would suggest. I, I, I keep trying to figure out what the exact numbers are with this meditation because of the training period, which is an addition to that 20 years. But my, my figures so far are coming to about 77, 78 chronological years of experience that I have, I have done. And I'm, so I'm about 77-year-old man in a 45-year-old body, which I call winning. Uh, I'd say so. <laughs> totally. So that... Yeah, sorry, just, just I just want to make sure that I... Because that was kind of hard for my brain to wrap around real quick. Um. So you, you uh, were I will born... say real quickly that it was really hard for my brain to that too. <laughs> yeah, and it's taken, you know, it's really taken some time for me to have to like get to this real truth of the full immersion sensory experience to, to like believe my own experiences and my own memories by being certain that they have a full sensory immersion memory to them, so that I know that it's not just something I'm making up to myself or something. And Processing all that information and doing that math and going, holy crap, am I really that old? And like the more I would think and quarter crunch the numbers and go, yeah, holy crap, I am that old. And so it's it's putting a bend on your brain. Well, it put a bend on my brain too. And it's still hard to sometimes really grasp around other than that I've done the math, I've, I've done the work to know that that's just a fact. So. I just keep trying to just accept it and move on. But I, I get it that it, that twists your noodle because it twisted my noodle. <laughs> well, I was just trying to do the math in my brain. Um, as far as you, you say you were born in 1970. Correct. And then when you're, and then when and you're so 17, you did a, a you did a 17 year tour, and then they brought you back to being a 17 year old, but not not back in time, just into a new body. Correct. Okay, so let, let me give you this map. Sorry, so, go ahead. <laughs> I was, that's okay, it's okay. That, that's almost correct. It's almost correct. So basically, I was 17 years old. Uh, I was sent away for a 20-year tour. So add 20 years onto that. And right. then I have a training period that occurred before I was 17 years old that was still outside of that time loop. So 
even though when I was 17 the first time, I actually had an extra 12 or 13 years worth of training experience. So again, in this very weird way, actually at 17, I was sort of almost 30. And then add another 20 to that, it's 50. And then come back and go forward again another 25, 7 years. I mean, so basically you're adding 17 plus 20 plus 13 plus um, 17, 45, 28. I mean, you kind of got to add all that together. And I think I was trying to do that today because someone was asking me. So there's basically a lot of jumps back in time, is what you're saying. Yes, a lot. Right. So, so when you were, so basically, spent all the time with the guy at the jump room technicians come in, open a portal in your in your room, take you back for a training session. So, and a lot of these training sessions sort of take place again in, in one evening. Because of that, you know, they can come back 15 minutes later. But really, those training sessions would last days or weeks before you, were, you know, you sort of finished the series and then would come back. And they had a way to, uh, yeah, they had a way to often sort of uh, do that training period while not allowing your body to age. And I can't understand how that technology was actually used, but they did somehow. So, so, so it was so very are, strange. It's all so you are coming back to the original time where you were taken, not. I was trying to add up all the time. I was like, well, if, if it was like 90 years worth of time, then you would have been born in like the 40s. But they're, they're bringing you back to when you were, they were, you were taken. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is something That's, that when, when I explain to people, I, That's what. yeah, if I, if I can draw it out, like draw a timeline and say, here's a loop, here's a loop, here's a loop. And now stretch all those out to one long line and add it up, and that's how you get to that figure. That makes more sense, right? I can sort of draw it out and show you visually what that timeline looks like instead of trying to explain it and you wrap your head around, okay, wait, it's linear because there's a loop and a loop here and a loop there, and you just add those together. It gets a little weird. So right. no, no, if, I, if I could stand here and like draw on my whiteboard, you know, I could sort of make it make more sense because when you can see it visually, it makes a little more sense. The different rate of aging on Mars also throws a bit of a wrench into the uh, trying to figure out the time span as well. Yeah, because a year is different sure. there. Absolutely. Well, yeah, but we're, yeah. So I, I, but we're measuring the tour of duty not in Mars years. We're measuring it in Earth years or with Zulu years. So right. the the calendar on Mars is not a, a whatever the four hundred or five hundred some days. You know, we're still on a Earth Zulu calendar of 24-hour days, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year, which gets weird. It does get weird because that means winter doesn't come the same time every year. You know, the winter's not consistent, spring's not consistent, summer's not consistent. Right. So it, it's kind of weird to push things into a weird balance, but they really want to try and keep track in the time that we're used to, so they call it a Zulu time. And, Recorded in the same sort of days, minutes, weeks, months, and years that are earlier, earlier time. Well, let me ask you about this, Randy. Um, you know, some of this reminds me that your story is a little similar to the story of Al Bielik and the Philadelphia experiment. And you know, in that, mm-hmm. he claimed that he went back to, well, he went, he was a, a a crewman on the Eldridge, the ship that disappeared on the. Philadelphia experiment, and then he went to 1983, right. then came back, and then apparently at some point he was uh, 
he was uh, age regressed to a baby and brought into the uh, to, into the 1920s and then lived out the rest of his life as Albelix. So it reminds me a little bit of that story. And uh, is there a connection between um, your story and like the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project? At least technologic wise. Yeah. Well, it, it only in the sense that you know those were early projects to develop and understand and master that technology. And by the time I came around, we had a better mastery of that technology and a more advanced uh, aspect of that technology. So when, you know, Al was in the Navy and was on the, the ship trying to do the Philadelphia experiment, which essentially was, hey, how do we hook this uh, alien generator up to our ship and what will it do? Well, we think it'll create a shield around the, the ship and maybe make the ship invisible. Well, uh, actually, it will transfer your ship through time space, and that was not what they expected was going to happen because they did not understand the technology that they were linking up with that ship. So they thought, hey, won't this make a cool invisibility shield? Not realizing that it wasn't an invisibility shield, but the ability to travel through time space and then disaster. So uh, right. it, that, that was such an early level of that technology. They didn't know what they were doing. That's why it was a, a total disaster, a massive accident, and so many people were hurt. I mean, I, I, the stories I've heard of the guys being essentially, you know, phased into the walls and phased into pieces of machinery must have been a horribly, horribly, horribly painful death for those men. Oh, and I just yeah. really cannot help but feel awful for them and their terrible, horrible, off-the-books, unacknowledged death. Using, you know, trying to use this, this ET experimentation technology that just, they didn't know well enough about to do safely, and you know the result was a lot of uh, you know sailors who died horrible, horrible, painful, agonizing deaths. Uh, and I can only feel horrible for them. I, I've, I've suffered enough military, military engagements myself, and watched my own men and women suffer in those engagements that I just have to feel horrible for those men in the agonizing way that they have to die. I want to ask you a question, Randy, and this is, uh, there were maybe people out there that would hear your story, and I'm sure that there are people that just don't believe you, and then there would also be people that would say that maybe you yourself could have been part of some kind of mind control experiment, and the possibility that these memories that you have are implanted somehow. Do you think that there's, and I'm saying that that there's a government that the government may still have been behind that, like you know MK Ultra, those projects that we know that happened. Uh, do you think that in any way a possibility that some of these memories may have been planted in in you through like a, a not, mind control experiment? Not even the remotest possibility that that could be true. And let me tell you why. I understand okay. a thing or two about memory that most people do not understand because of what I've had to do to discover and recover memory. So essentially, when you are able to enter into sort of an alpha-theta state, a real theta state, recovering and, and experiencing memory at that point is not vague. It's not like I barely visually remember that or I barely audibly remember that. When you are in a theta brainwave state, memories are a fully immersive sensory experience, which means you remember and experience the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, the full immersion of sensory experience. And it is absolutely impossible, let me reiterate that, it is absolutely impossible 
to create a false memory that has full sensory immersion. So now having experienced a few false memories, false memories essentially when you're trying to get into a memory experience uh, act very much like a two-dimensional flat memory. It doesn't have the full sensory immersion. It has only some visual and some auditory clues. And essentially when you uh, push harder against that memory going, come on, is that true, is that true, is that true, is that true? It falls down, it disappears, and you go, oh, that was a false memory. And then behind that will be the full sensory immersion experience, which will be the true memory. So I can say this first about that. It is absolutely not even remotely possible, according to everything we understand about science and memory, that my memories could be fake. Now let me say one more thing about that. Uh, People also suggest that I am a liar do not understand criminal legal liability. And let me explain this. And I I get a little irritated by this. And I don't want you to think that I'm being irritated at you for asking the question. Because I think it's a fair question to ask. Yeah, it's a fair question to ask. But because I get so irritated about this, because people who keep asking me this question simply do not understand criminal legal liability. So let me explain it real quickly. There are certain jobs, positions that you can have that you can't just say anything that you want because having that position has a linked up legal liability to it. Let me tell you what the three main uh, careers that that involves, that that includes doctors, lawyers, and military officers. If you are a doctor and you commit fraud, you lie in any way to the public. You say a public lie. You know, I had this experience and, and it didn't really happen. Uh, you commit any, any, any minor criminal fraud as a doctor and you can use your medical license. If you are a lawyer and you commit any, any, any criminal fraud, you lie publicly about an experience, you can be disbarred. If you claim that you are a U.S. military officer and you are not one, or you are a U.S. military officer and you commit fraud, it is a crime. Impersonating an officer is a felony. If I am a liar, this is very clear, if I'm a liar, I must be a felon who is committing fraud and impersonating an officer. And if that is the case, then I would like to know, after the last couple of years of my speaking to people, including my local law enforcement officials, local uh, Marine Corps commanders, government officials, politicians, corporate officials, members of the FBI, if I am a liar committing fraud, I want to know why have the FBI and the Marine Corps not arrested me and stopped handcuffs on me for committing fraud and impersonating an officer? And the answer to that is because I am not lying and I'm not impersonating an officer. So there's that answer. If you do understand legal criminal liability, you must understand it is not possible for me to be lying about this and still not be in handcuffs in front of a judge. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like someone that would uh, that would pose to be a cop. Like if you if you say you're a cop or you uh, dress in a cop's uniform, you know you 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 go to jail. That's for that. another That's one. That's a criminal exactly. offense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't just say, "Hey, I was a cop" or "I'm a cop." No, that that's a criminal offense. You get arrested. So I, I'm not exactly you know what do you say uh, hiding. You know, I am very public about my case. I'm very public about right. my story. And, I, and I've made it very clear to people, hey, you think I'm committing fraud, report me. And I'll tell you, I've told several people, I said, look, you, you think I'm a fraud, call up the CMC's office, who's the commandant of the Marine Corps, and you report my ass. And I have had several people who've done that. They've called up the CMC's office to say, hey, what about this Randy Kramer guy? And every time, it seems to be the same thing. They call up, someone picks up the phone, you know, they ask the question. 
first says, hold, please, puts them on the phone with someone else who starts ask, asking very interrogated questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your phone number? Where are you calling from? And most of these people feel very uncomfortable at this interrogative by name question and simply hang up the phone. So, uh, you know, I have, told my, I have told people, you think I'm committing fraud? You know, paddle on me. Call the CMC office. Call the FBI. Tell them, I can't wait, can't wait for a hearing that I've been trying to get through my congressman's office and through it, uh, issuing a paperwork and, and making the legal request. I can't wait for a hearing. I can't wait for the opportunity to get a JAG representation and go through this process. I can't wait. So if they think I'm committing fraud, then get over here and slap the frickin' cuffs on me right now. And I'm just going to tell you, this is the United States of America, okay? And, and what I mean by that is we are, are a military country. Anyone who does not understand that the United States of America is a military country does not understand the truth. And here's something about being a military country. We have zero sense of humor about people who impersonate officers. Zero sense of humor. There is absolutely no way that I could be impersonating an officer and I would be tolerated by the FBI or the Marine Corps. Not even tolerated. We have no sense of humor about that. They would not... Yeah, they, they would not think it was funny and they would want to take action to have me cease and desist. And so the fact that they have done nothing in its own way is an admission that I must be telling the truth because if I were lying, they would be obligated and would have no sense of humor about it and would want to arrest me. And they don't want to do that because then I would get my represent my JAG representation and I'd get my hearing like I want because I go, oh, great, thanks for arresting me. I want my JAG representative right now and I want my hearing. Let's go. And they don't want to give me that, so they're not going to arrest me because they don't want that. And they know I'm not lying. They know I'm telling the truth. They know that if they did that, then I could say, yeah, come on, now give me the polygraph I've been trying to get and can't get one single person to give me a polygraph. Let me make this very clear. Uh, I talked to Clyde Lewis last night. I was on his show at Ground Zero Radio. And basically, uh, we brought that up again. And he's had Larry Overman, one of his producers, try and find one polygraph test giver to give me a polygraph. And not a single person we've ever contacted anywhere in the freaking continent of the United States who gives polygraph tests will grant me and give me a polygraph test. And they've made it very clear why. It's not because they think I'm lying. It's because they have to stake their reputation on that test. And if they think, and if it turns out that I pass the test, and I'm telling the truth, they feel that their reputation as a polygraph tester will be in question and their career will be ruined. Not because I'm lying, but because they will have to say, I'm telling the truth. And they know that there are certain people who won't want to believe that and will just say, oh, you must be lying and a terrible polygraph tester if you think he's telling the truth, even if I pass the test. So uh, we have been trying so hard. Let me say, at least say this to all of your listeners. I am dying to take a polygraph test. I have even said, if you can set it up and I can bring my, my personally attending physician to make sure that medical safety protocols are assured, I'll take the shot of sodium pentothal. You can give me the freaking truth serum and the polygraph and see if I'm lying. Bring it on. Anybody who can set that up, anybody who wants to test me, anyone who thinks I'm a liar or a fraud, make that happen and I will show up. I want right. it. I want it bad. I want the polygraph bad. Make it happen and I'll be there. But no one will give it to me. I've tried hard to get everyone to give me one, and no one will do it. I, I want to ask in the time that we have left, because we're, we're, we're running out of time, but this, this concept about uh, that the, they want, the breakaway civilization wants to exterminate the people on Earth, how do they plan to do that? 
Well, the plans have certainly been, you know, viral infections, uh, you know, rate, release of radiation to increase sterility rates, uh, you know, i.e. Fukushima, uh, any, anything that can sort of throw chaos and, and life-threatening illness or so forth into the system. And, um, I mean, there, there's also a, what I would have to say, a list of contingencies to do that which uh, I couldn't say what they all are, but any, any plan that somebody could think of that could kill massive numbers of people in a very, very short period of time would be on the list of possible options for those people to reduce uh, the civilian population of the planet. Right, exactly. Uh, it's, it's very messed up. Uh, you've heard of the Georgia Guidestones, I'm they sure, are. right? The 500 million, uh, yes. keep the earth at 500 million people? Uh, um, yeah, and but I'll say this, um, that I don't think the Georgia Guidestones are any sort of, you know, evil incarnate, like some people suggest the Rosicrucians don't really have that sense about them, and it was put up to kind of in a time when, um, you know, there's some sort of other questions going on. I think it's, it is a healthy thing to consider that we should have a healthy number of people on this planet for global human health. And that, you know, we're, what are we up to, you know, almost nine, nine billion or something? I mean, that, yeah. that is not just a lot of people. That threatens the health and well-being of the entire planet by being overpopulated. And I'm not saying that the answer is kill a bunch of people, but, you know, maybe like some concerted effort to get people to just stop having freaking babies so that we don't, you know, keep adding to that number so that we can actually act like a responsible adult intergalactic species who doesn't think that our own self-interest and our desire to have nine kids is more important than the safety and the history and the longevity of our planet. So, well, maybe if we uh, could, well, well, I think know, that... Maybe if ahead, we could use some of this breakaway civilization's technology and move start moving people off the planet. Uh, I, I think, and many other people think, that the minute that we can start bringing in all of this technology to invigorate the Earth space program so that we can take all of this technology and invigorate our ability to go out and do asteroid mining, space mining, get into space-based industry, that the minute that we can really start doing that, there's absolutely an opportunity that I think a large portion of the civilian population of planet Earth would jump at. I mean, when Elon Musk was like, hey, we might be going to Mars in 20 years, and you know, if you want to be part of that program, you know, like send us an application, and they were flooded with applicants. And, th and this is not even like with modern technology where you come and go and you go in there and back. This is basically like pretending that the only thing we have is rockets that will get you there in a year and a half and you'll never get to return. So in a stated mission where you're going to go to Mars and never get to come back, it's just for the, the exploratory adventure of doing it, you have a large, significant number of people who are like, yeah, I'll go, let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. So I think we have a significant population of planet Earth that if they have the opportunity, they'd love to get out there and be part of that. Right, right, exactly. Uh, did you have a question? No, I just, I just want to say, as long as we have people writing songs called I Found Jesus in Walmart, <laughs> <laughs> we have deeper issues we need to... We're doomed oh, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, good point. Uh, you know, good point. I, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna personally go there, but let me put it this way: one way of looking at that is that the human civilization is a very, very, very long train trying to come into a station, 
and say the people who are in the front end of that train might be a little more ready to be in the future, and the people at the back end of the train in the caboose are not even in the station yet, and they're not even ready to sort of come up to that. But, you know, the whole train is going to get there eventually, but, but you know, some of us are at the front end of the train, some of us are at the back end of the train, and, you know, what are you going to do? There's people riding the caboose that are still living think, in the 19th century, so. I think that caboose is pretty full. <laughs> Good point. Well, on that note, uh, Randy, I, I would ask... probably agree. I want to ask you. Uh, we're we're going to have to cut it cut it off here pretty soon. But uh, before you go, you like where can people get in touch with you, and, and where can they see uh, your writings and and, and uh, what you're doing? Um, probably by tomorrow, I will have my website updated. Uh, I, I basically it's been sitting sort of not updated for a number of months, and a uh, very good person who decided to be my web developer who, who felt that uh, I had helped them with their problem well enough that they wanted to return the favor. And so I have this beautiful new website. It will still be at, at my web address at earthcitizenconsulting.org, all one word, um, that, that will be live uh, today or tomorrow or the next day, which will look gorgeous and has lots of pretty pictures on it and looks very up-to-date. So anyone who, you know... Uh, yeah, they can go to earthcitizenconsulting.org and hopefully by tomorrow they'll, they'll see the pretty website up that my web developer made for me now. And, uh, I just had pretty pictures and got the links to all my interviews and everything else that I've done. And we're going to try and put a bunch more information on there pretty soon. We've been talking about all that data that we can link to and get on there. And we're going to try and really make the website more professional. And basically, when I did my first website, it was the first website I'd ever done. I'd never done it before. I was kind of managing all by myself. And now that I have someone who's a professional at this, this is their job, they've been doing it for two decades, uh, my website will actually look good and will actually have someone who can get all the right stuff linked up there and it should look great and have tons of information on it. Excellent, excellent. Well, is there anything else you guys wanted to add before we go? Oh, well, I have plenty of questions for you, but yeah, I mean, maybe yeah, for another episode. Right, right. We'll have to do this again for sure. For sure. Uh, Rob? Think? Uh, I could go all night, man. No. Yeah, <laughs> I could do. Uh, but, but, but thank you so much for being on, Captain K, uh, Randy. And uh, hold on the line for us. We're just going to close out this segment, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right. Back on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, I am just. Yeah, so. So you guys can like roll up your tongues now and put them back in your jaw. Yeah, <laughs> we we we're we're back here on the Nautilus class starship of Conspiracy Normal, and uh, that was uh, that was fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, that was extremely fascinating. I'm gonna have to re-listen to that at least two or three times. Yeah. Because. <laughs> yeah. So impressions, guys. I, I definitely didn't fall asleep during that one. Yeah, that's what that's that's when you just kind of just keep up. Like the energy was good, and everybody was asking questions, and yeah, he he was going a hundred miles an hour on that stuff. A lot to cover. He's he's had a full life. Yeah, yeah. Any anytime, anytime we tried to challenge him too, he just fired right back with all the information. Right. right. Yeah, I want to kind of get more into like the mind control stuff a little bit. Uh, you know. I find it interesting some of these guys that are out there, like Captain K and uh, Andrew Basiago and uh, other people from like the Montauk Project and uh, um, 
Al Bielik that I mentioned when we were talking to, to him. You know, one of the things that I've thought about many times is that some of these guys could have been mind control subjects. And that's why I wanted to ask him about that yeah. and how he felt. And, you know, what was he talking about? Two dimensional and three dimensional memories and that. Like, any idea what he's kind of talking about there? Because I've never heard of that before. Uh, yeah, I, I have no clue either. Well, I think yeah. he was just saying that basically a false memory is less real than a real memory. Uh, oh, right. Okay. And since right. he's had false memories implanted in him, he knows what to look for. Was kind of what I got out of his okay. his statement. Okay, so he's just kind of just he's saying he has experience with it, so he knows that these this stuff is not right. Memory. And what what I got from it is like you could wake up from a dream, even though you think it's real at the time. You could wake up from it and be like, "Oh, okay, well, I was obviously dreaming." Where he's right. trying, where he's saying like, "No, it was nothing like a dream. I remember every little detail of everything that happened." Right, right. But let's talk a little bit about this uh, breakaway civilization thing. Um, you know, that's one, like, I, least, I used to listen to Coast to Coast a lot, and Richard C. Hoagland was the guy that would talk about Mars and secret space program and this idea of breakaway civilization. We talked to, uh, you weren't there for that, uh, Robbins, before you joined us, but we talked to a guy named Olaf Phillips, and that's actually how I was able to get Randy on, uh, because Olaf gave... Uh, my email address to him and uh that was back like last year or back in january and then i was able to get that interview scheduled but then kind of got our lines crossed on that um but we talked to olaf phyllis about that and he had a book about alternative three and alternative three was this um mockumentary that was produced in the late 70s in britain and it was basically about people leaving um, the Earth to go to off-world or to go to Mars. And supposedly the idea was that, like, they went to Mars, this breakaway civilization or space program went to Mars in, like, the early 60s. And things had developed since then to the point of the late 70s. And it was it was a mockumentary. It wasn't real. It was supposed to have been, like, kind of like a War of the Worlds kind of thing. And it was supposed to have been shown on uh, i think it was like tim's television in britain and they were supposed to show it on april 1st okay obvious april fool's day uh, but for some reason they couldn't show it until june and it looked very much like and you can find this thing on youtube it looked very much like a real legit television documentary like a television news show and people were just uh, fooled by it. And actually, I think we talked about it with Nick Redfern the second time he was on here. We talked about, uh, we talked about Alternative 3 and what he thought of it. You know, so you can see, you know, he grew, you know, he was old enough to remember it and seeing it actually coming on. Um, but some people have looked at that and said, okay, it was a mockumentary, it wasn't real, but there may have been like a way to put information out to the public. And like, that's what Olaf Phillips was saying, that it was a, that 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 those were the means, the reason that it was produced, uh. okay. And the reason it's called Alternative Three was supposedly in the documentary, uh, they realize that the Earth is dying, or they're going, we're coming into a new ice age, which was like a big thing in the seventies, right? Instead of global warming, it was global cooling, and they said that uh, one of the first the, the first alternative supposedly was to go underground, or the second alternative. 
um, was to, I think, uh, blow a hole in like the ozone layer or blow a hole in the atmosphere to try to release some of the, that's the some of the with. gases. Yeah. Okay. Like that's where you get a lot of these chemtrail things that are going up. Like people talk about the chemtrail conspiracy and that we're trying to change the earth or, or avert global warming. Uh, but alternative three was to basically leave the planet. And they said that sometime in the 1950s, these group of scientists got together and they began a secret space program in order to eventually bring people off the planet. And in alternative three, they were actually bringing like scientists and young people that were in uh, university programs and these people were disappearing. So in, in the documentary, the mockumentary, they were investigating these guys being, uh, disappearing. And then the, one thing leads to another in this mockumentary and they, they discover that it's a secret space program. Now we were talking about with Walter Bosley, who I'm going to have back on next month. Uh, we were talking about in his book, Empire of the Will, but we mentioned a little bit about uh, the the airships of the late 1890s. And we talked about how someone possibly like an inventor or someone, a secret group, had possibly invented this airship at that point in the, in the, in the late 1890s. And his kind of his hypothesis, and there's another guy named Joseph Patrick Farrell, and then you have Richard Dolan, who believed that this idea of this breakaway civilization could have started from that point and just progressed on. And maybe you get like a little bit of the kind of like that Nazi influence, like the Nazi bell and all that kind of stuff. And I think there may be something to this whole breakaway civilization idea. Well, I, I definitely believe that there's a very elite group on the planet who has... Maybe not our interests in mind, but the human race's interests in mind, and they kind of sort of believe that population control is a big part of that, and yeah. basically screw the rest of us. I don't know if Mars is the best place to take us. I think they probably no. would just eradicate us since all the resources are already here. Well, interesting you should say that, Rob, because next week we're going to, well, actually in the next few days on Sunday... Because we're recording this on July 8th, and on July 12th, we're going to be talking about uh, the Georgia Guidestones. And a good friend of the show, first ever guest, Dr. Future, is coming back on. Yeah. Real excited. Um, and hopefully, uh, Chris Pinto, who was the director of the, uh, the film, put it all together. And like I said before, uh, Dr. Future did a lot of the research on it. And we're going to talk about uh, who they believe... And I would say that I believe were the people that that built this Georgia Guidestones. Right. It's they not have... exactly like the big mega elite. It's not like the Illuminati or any of these guys. It's more of it, a group of rich people. Group of people, <laughs> right? Group of rich people. Because they have a documentary coming out on this yep. whole thing in a couple weeks, a, right? Yep. And it sh- actually, it should be out. I think like coming out next week. I think it's ready to go. Oh, it's pretty time. much. It's being. It's being. Uh, it's being sold on Chris Pinto's website at Adullam Films. It's called Dark Clouds over Elberton, over, over Elberton, which is the city that the, the little town where the Godstones are in. And we're going to be talking about the, the history of the Godstones, what they are, kind of like the, the commandments that they have, and also um, 
the history of these guys, these people that built this. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a really fascinating show. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. going to be revealed. So, but uh, I think uh, Luke's about ready to go hit the bar. Yeah, it's a uh, it's time to go hang out with my buddy. He's single now and. Yep, single, ready to mingle. Time to waste some money and piss it all out. You should tell like all the women that work here about you know, about how your buddy is single and how you hook them up, and uh, the, or the women that listen to the show. Uh, oh, 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 yes, yes. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not no. going to make a PSA. For, <laughs> like a PSA for <laughs> Devo. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Yeah. Uh, no, you, you can go have some fun with Devo, but, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't be looking for anything uh, long term. <laughs> Alright guys, if there's anything else, we'll just call it a night. I'm getting kinda of hungry, so Work. But uh Rob, we're gonna miss you the next couple of shows. You're gonna be in Michigan. Yeah, just for a week. Yep. And then we're like we're doing like two shows pretty much in a row that oh. week. So but uh we'll, we'll we'll you'll be back in August with us, so I wanna thank you guys and I wanna also thank Captain K, Randy Kramer for coming on tonight, and uh we'll be back next time on Conspiranormal
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.